applied the brake, then the wheels locked up. Instead of going left, we went straight ahead and into the Armco barrier. So we've slid along the barrier and the car's rolled onto its roof bonnet. The upright for the Armco is then caught on the bonnet and the car's flipped up into a tree. Still breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big property? That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Radri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders, past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. In my family, there are four people who are passionate about motorsports. And by passionate, I mean keen to get up in the middle of the night to watch a televised race overseas or to go to Bathurst for the weekend and watch cars tear around the hill at high speeds or navigate or drive in an on-road rally around Australia or on designated race circuits or, like my 12-year-old son, spend a day go-karting decked out in a race suit and helmet and travelling at speeds that make any good parent wonder if they made a poor decision saying yes. I know my family is just a microcosm of what exists around Australia, with thousands of people very keen to watch or participate in motorsports. And my guest in this episode is one of those persons. Richard has loved rallying for years, and both he and his brother have been immersed in the sport for a long time, investing time and money and passion. But as with any fast-moving sport that relies on skill and speed of response, things can go wrong. G'day, Richard. How are you going? I'm good. When did you and your brother Stephen get involved in rallying? Um, it would have been in the early 2000s, I'd say. So we've both always had an interest in cars. And um, Steve yeah, started, you originally did a, a Dutton rally and then I think an East Coast one. And then the first one we did together was a rally Tasmania in Burnie. What did you love about it when you first started? Um, Well, being involved in motorsport after watching it on the TV for a long time and then finally being involved was good. But over the years, um, I guess it was more about spending time with my brother than um, anything else. Mm. I I interviewed a lovely man who's a mountain bike rider uh, a few months ago, and he said that he does mountain bike riding because of the social connection and the fitness and the fact that it gets him out and about. Is motorsport sort of the same for you in terms of that social connectivity and getting out from your normal everyday, you know, workaday world? Yeah, for us it is now because after doing it for many years, you meet people and with the tarmac rally, a lot of the people, same people go to the same events and so you see the same people there and we actually go with most of the time travel down to the events with another um, 
driver and navigator from Canberra, so um, we were quite, you know, good friends now. So, mm. and that part of it as well, the the trip and the journey and all of that is just as important as the race because we know we're never going to win. So <laughs> it's yeah, it's that it is that social part of the the outing that's yeah the most enjoyable. Mm. And you say we're never going to win. Is that because of the type of car you drive or the skill or just simply because you're not that competitive that you're going to drive yourself to that? Oh, look, we, I think anybody that goes in one of those events is competitive, but I think, yeah, you've got to you look at your skill level and your car and the other people that are doing it. And, you know, a lot of the guys and girls that are driving, they might spend every second or third weekend with their backside in a race car. So where we probably don't put enough practice or time into it to be as competitive, I guess, as we could be. Mm. But, um, yeah, for us it's more of a, a relaxation and, a, a and you know, just a trip away. But, again, like when we get there, we want to do as well as we can. I can understand that. I think I do find it interesting that for some people racing around in a – and I do mean racing – in a car at high speeds is relaxation, whereas for me that would be the complete opposite. But but it, I, I do understand that because, as I said, I've got people in my family who, who just love it. It's for them it's a chance to switch off and to just really focus, I think. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, I used to play football and that was relaxation and, right. and an escape. So, But, again, most people – Thinking packing down into a rugby union scrub is not relaxation either. But yep, you got me there. <laughs> always good fun. So how does road rally work? Could you walk it through for me? They close the the roads for the day and it's all on bitumen, right? Yeah, so we do tarmac rally, so they're all on sealed roads. Part of the road is closed for a, a period of the day mm. and it's closed by the local police. The cars then have access to use both sides of the road, so mm. you can get the apexes on the turns, and you, know, you can use the road to its full advantage. How long would a course normally be? Uh, look, they all vary, and then the stages vary as well. I guess the shortest stage might be between two and three kilometres. The longest one being about fifty-five. And why do you need a navigator if it's just one single? One is it if it's a single road, is it because that you it's a course as such as well? Or? Yeah, well it's so for Target Tasmania, which is the biggest event or the longest event, you go essentially it's five and a half days. But you don't repeat any of those stages. They're all different stages every day. So mm. and although you might do the some stages the same one year to the next, in the actual race you don't repeat a section. So they're all different stages for each part of the rally and within the target there's a tour comp uh, tour part of the event which you don't need a, a navigator for but you're limited to the speed you can go and they're sent out with in sort of groups of 10 with a tour leader mm. and a tour follower and then we're in the competition part of the event where you're now we call required to do reconnaissance before the event so that you've driven the course you've got notes either prepared by yourself or we get notes prepared by a professional navigator um, so we go and check those notes and check the road conditions and you know we'll add notes 
as required if we see fit or if we need to change a, a notation or something. So so the navigator's there to assist the driver in, I guess, essentially seeing around the corner mm. so that as you approach one corner, you're actually calling to the driver what's around that corner so that he knows the angle and the speed um, mm. to go into the, the first corner so that he can make the optimal um, approach to the corner he can't see. So it really is a team effort then, isn't it? Because you have the driver who can only see what they can see yes. in the landscape and then you have the navigator who has the map and who knows what is coming up beyond the landscape that you can see. Yeah. And so together as a team, you can then therefore navigate the course. What sort of speeds are we talking about? Look, most of the time you're probably between 80 to maybe 140 kilometres an hour because, again, most of these events are on roads that are twisty and, you know, climb up and down hills. So <laughs> the twistier the better. So right. that does restrict your speed because, you know, you simply can't, you know, travel at high speeds through tight corners. But at stages you might get up to 200 kilometres wow. an hour. Okay. Wow. All right. Well, I have um, a few more questions for you. Do many women participate or is it just heavily a male-dominated sport? It would be male-dominated, but, you know, each year there's more more women seem to be involved. A lot of the times they're navigators and that's probably because their their male partner is, you know, too full of testosterone to let them drive, which they probably do a better job. So, yeah, so but, yeah, there's... There's certainly a male domination, but there is a lot of ladies involved in it. And how are the results published or announced? Is it about getting the best time or beating your mates or is it does it end up being like one one make of car against the others, like well, they, Mazda versus Porsche or whatever? Or well, Normally they'll group them into, say, modern all-wheel drive, modern two-wheel drive, early modern, classic, late classic, and then vintage. And then within those groupings mm. they'll have classes with regard to the capacity of the motor of the car so how many cars would enter for example the tasmanian well, in, in targa with all cars involved there's probably around 300 to 350 just depending on the year and what it is now there was a rally in tasmania some years back what year are we talking about targa's now been going this year was the 30th running of it so yeah so it's been going yeah, since 1992, I guess that makes it. Right. And when you had um, a bit of a challenging accident within that race, what year was that? Was that about 10 years ago? Strangely, or? that was 2013. So. <laughs> okay. And what type of cars were in that rally? All those classes were then um, at that point. And we were in, in that stage, we would have been in, Late classic. So what were you driving? Uh, Mazda RX-7, Series 4. Okay. And you were navigating or driving? I was navigating. You were navigating. All right, could you walk me through what happened? Who was driving? Was your brother? My brother was driving, yep. We were on a stage that had been freshly resealed on the Friday because when we did the reconnaissance on the earlier in that week or maybe a week before, the road hadn't been sealed. So... When we got to the start, at the start of each stage, they'll have a notice board and they'll tell you if there's any cars off or dangerous conditions. They had a note, you know, gravel from start to 4.5 or 
certain kilometre stage through the, the stage. And so we noted that typically when they say gravel, it means there's gravel being brought onto the roads by the cars that have preceded us in the event. So oh, that, so uh, it doesn't mean a gravel road? No, but just normally it would mean the cars have been cutting the corners and they've oh. pushed gravel on onto the apex of the I, corner. I live in rural Australia, so yeah. gravel road for me has yeah. a different meaning, but okay. So, and so, so that's what we were road expecting. with gravel on it. Yeah, so we okay. were expecting that, you know, a bit of gravel at the apex when we came to the first turn. And what had actually happened was that they'd resealed the road with, you know, the bitumen and then the truck overlaying it with, you know, gravel. So there was quite a lot of gravel on the road. So we had a little bit of a moment on the first turn, but we were able to, to gather that up and got through all the gravel stage. So we were then through the, the loose gravel on the road into the yeah, the second half of the stage and we came onto a you know, what they call I think it was from memory now a, a left five. So which is a corner a three is like a ninety degree turn. So it was a a turn that was sort of not not a fast turn, but yeah, you know, one you would have turn, to brake for. A gentle turn to the left that would require some braking. What mm. happened? Well, the driver applied the brake, then the wheels locked up. Instead of going left, we went straight ahead and into the Armco barrier. Right. So you hit the barrier. That's that. The Armco barrier is the steel barrier that goes along the edge of the road to catch cars like yes. yours going yep. too fast. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened? So we've slid along the barrier and the cars rolled onto its roof bonnet. The upright for the Armco is then caught on the bonnet and the cars flipped up into a, uh, thankfully, a non-mature tree that's caught the car and sort of had a bit of a flex and then flexed the other way and spat us back out and we rolled down about a 30-metre embankment. Oh, my God. And then the car came to rest on its side on the with the driver's side there. Wow. So you you rolled all the way down 30 metres. And and your car, obviously, I presume, has roll cages and, and yeah. all of the regular safety stuff in these rallies for going at such speeds. Yeah. So in so, the competition part of it, you have to have a safety cage, which is approved, a full racing harness, proper racing seats, helmets, um, race suits, um, underwear that's, you know. Non-flammable. Um, yeah. The whole the whole work. So yep. you you rolled all the way down. Were you okay? What do you, how did the yeah, car land? The, well, the car came to its rest on its side and we said, asked each other whether we were okay. We both were. So we then twisted, you know, sideways to get out the, the window because the, the window on my side I think was broken. The windscreen was still intact, I think. So anyway, yeah, we got out the side window of my side, jumped off the car and scrambled up the bank. So, And in this sort of situation where you do have an off, you have to carry a board, which um, one side says OK and one side says SOS. So we just had the OK board up. So the rest of the field of cars that were following could go through without stopping to say, because normally if there's a an accident and there's an SOS or no sign, the first couple of cars have got to stop to render assistance. So Very if curious. there's no yeah, if there's no problem, um, you hold the OK board up so the rest of the event can flow through and they get a, you know an open run at the, the stage. 
Did you have any trouble getting up that 30-metre embankment? No, we just scaled back up to, to get to the top and let everyone know that it was okay and, yeah. So what happened then? Um, so we waited for the field to go through and then at the end of the stage they have what they call a sweep, um, which comes through to close the stage. And then following that they have the naughty bus for the... <laughs> To pick up the people that have um, run into either, trouble, yeah, broken down or whatever, so um, that they can take them back to um, the base that night. They also have a an FIV, which is a first intervention vehicle, which has paramedics in it, and they come through and just check people like if they have had an accident, they'll just check that they're okay and um, you know they're right to go home or otherwise. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback, and Isuzu have provided D-Max Utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes, minus the wings, and the Isuzu D-MAX and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state, and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. What did the paramedics say when they pulled up? Well, they pulled up and they said, oh, how are you going? Like Steve had a cut on his nose from his glasses where that had sort of impacted and, and cut him. So they cleaned him up a bit and I think put a, either a butterfly thing or something to stop the bleeding. And then they just checked us both over because I think they went and had a look over the bank and saw where the car was and said, well, I think we'll, we'll just give you a bit of a checkup just to make sure. And part of that they were checking for, he ran his thumb down my spine and checked all our senses and for any tingling and, um, you know, our conscious state. And so, yeah, it gave us a, a thorough, as thorough as you can be on the side of the road checkup. Good. All right. And what did they say? Well, they were of the opinion that they should probably take us to the local hospital just to, to make sure. At the time, I had no physical signs or feelings that I had anything wrong with me. So you were a little bit flippant about it maybe? No, I guess, yeah. I sort of thought, oh, well, we'll go there and we'll get the okay. And um, I guess the biggest thing, because we'd come from Strawn that morning and we are actually up near La Trobe, which is at the top of the state, and the Strawn sort of not almost fair to the bottom. Away. But, yeah, fair way down. And um, so, yeah, so we were... Thinking, oh, how, you know, how's this all going to work? What's the logistics of this now to, to get the car and all the rest of it? Yeah. So they took you off to the hospital there. What happened once you got to the hospital? Well, luckily I was seen by a very competent doctor who decided after what had happened that I should have a CT ice. A CT scan? CT scan, yeah, which then happened and... Um, had the scan, came back, and I was just lying in the bed in the, the emergency section. It was only a, a small hospital and sort of only for day patients and procedures. There was a little bit of a discussion going on, and 
I mentioned to Vanessa, my wife, who was there at that stage because she comes down and does the support for us. I said, oh, are they talking about me? I think she knew sort of what was going on but didn't let on too much. So, yeah, then the doctor came and spoke to us. What did he say? Uh, was It was a she, and um, she said, do you want the good news or the bad news? And I said, well, I'll have the bad news first, thanks. She said, oh, well, the bad news is you've broken your back. You've fractured a vertebrae. So I'd actually made an extra one, so split it. Split it in half. Split it in half straight through, so, uh, yeah, to make a one extra. What was the good news? <laughs> um, the good news was she said you've got no damage to the, your spinal cord. Wow. So what, what do they do with that? Like how, um, how do they fix a broken back? So they then strapped me up onto a board and back in the ambulance and off to Launceston Hospital. Because they have a lot of these incidents down there with motorbike riders and push bike, you know, mountain bike riders and car drivers, the general rule of thumb is there you lie on your back for six weeks with limited mobility and the bones will fuse back together. And then at that point, they put you in a brace and send you home. Six weeks in hospital? Yes. Strapped down, not able to move? Yeah. Okay. Were you in any pain at that point? No, didn't have any pain and, and didn't feel any different than the morning before the incident. Did the doctors explain what can happen when you have a, an injury like that if you don't follow that advice? The risk there is that the bones shear and then damage the cord. At which point? Well, you can become a paraplegic. Wow. Mm. What were your thoughts at the time? I mean, that was probably not within your plan for the for the rally. Not really, no. So, I mean, look, again, nobody goes down there to, to have an accident, but you do acknowledge that that or death is a risk and a part of what happens there. Did it freak you out? I mean, I'll be honest with you, I would freak out if I was told that I had broken a vertebrae in half and that if I moved too much, I could end up a paraplegic. So how how were you feeling? Again, I guess because I felt okay and I had no obvious ill effect from it besides the the diagnosis, I said to my brother Steve at the time, I said, you know, this this can't be the way this ends because we've had a lot of fun doing it. So we've got to come and do at least one more. If, you know, to, if that's going to be one more will be it, that's it, but we can't end it like this. I don't know. There's something about Aussie men. i got to say. <laughs> I've interviewed too many Aussie men who have the most outrageous things happen and their first response is, I'm sure I can solve this and get back to do it again. <laughs> Why not? So, okay, so there you are in a lawn system hospital. You're strapped down. You've got no mobility whatsoever. How was that? Well, for the first day, it wasn't too bad, but probably after about the third, it was getting a little bit um, irritating. Well, would I say irritating? Probably irritating and just, yeah, after being somebody that's sort of never sits still for too long, um, yeah, lying in bed all day, having to be assisted to go to the toilet and all those sort of things, it was something I couldn't see myself surviving for six weeks. How do they feed you? Like Because you can't sit up. How does that work? Are you on um, a tube feed or something? Well, you can't, like, you could you could sit up um, to a certain degree, but yep. it was just that you were immobilised to the fact that you're, you know, there was no sudden movements or 
bending suddenly or... So there was no getting out of bed. No getting was... out of bed or move, physically moving around. You could you could lie down to sleep and then sort of sit up at a, you know, a low angle to eat. Right. So what did you do after after that first week where you suddenly realised that the thought of continuing in this manner for another five weeks was probably going to drive you nuts? What did you yeah. decide to do? Well, we decided we'd investigate options for surgery. The neurosurgeon at the hospital down there was away on holidays. The other thing I would say that the care I got at the Launceston Hospital was fantastic and that had no reflection on why I wanted to, to, to get out, but it was more that I wanted to, to get moving. So we contacted a surgeon in Canberra who's recognised as um, one of the best in Australia when it comes to back operations. We then obviously arranged to get myself flown home to Canberra from Launceston. How did you do that? I had no input on that because I was flat out in bed in the hospital. But Vanessa and Steve, my brother, um, made the calls to the doctors and then yeah, to, um, I guess it was would have been ambulance or the Tasmanian Ambulance Service, um, about yeah, getting a, a, a flight home. We work very closely with Tasmanian Ambulance in Tasmania. Mm. So the RFGS would have been contacted and asked to fly you from Launceston, which is where we have one of our bases, yep. up to the Canberra airport. Do you remember that flight? I do. I remember going into the hangar and all that was there were RFDS planes. Obviously, most Australians know of the RFDS. So it was my first close introduction to the business. Do you remember the actual flight? Or did it take very long? I mean, it, yeah, it did take a long. I guess it would have been from there in a small plane, I think maybe two hours or three hours, something like that. At this point, I was strapped down to a, a timber, I don't know what they call those. Yeah, they call them backboards, I yeah. think. So, yeah, um, and they're there specifically to support uh, spinal mm. injuries. And they're not comfortable, I'm sure. They don't not look comfortable. Not comfortable at all because <laughs> I guess by the time they strapped me on it in the hospital, the trip out to the airport, the flight, then the trip to the drive then to um, Canberra Hospital, I guess it would have been approaching four to four and a half hours. Yeah. So backside by then was pretty numb. Right. <laughs> were, they, uh, were the staff nice? Did they give you some look, guidance yeah, and some help? The, yeah. Look, I'd, I'd have to say the care I got all along the way had been terrific. So, um, you know, I don't think I've ever met a paramedic or type of professional that isn't caring and compassionate because I think you're born to carry out those roles because mm. they just are amazing people. Mm. Well, I guess lying on a, on a backboard, you wouldn't have been able to even look out the window. You're just lying there looking at the ceiling. Yeah, I <laughs> so. guess I think you – I could see a little bit, but, yeah, you're just sort of seeing sky rather than yeah. than anything else. But, I mean, yeah, they they sort of talk to you along the way. How are you going? You know, do you need a drink or – um, so, yeah, so they did, it was, it was as pleasant as it could be. And in the end, I'd got myself into the situation. So you couldn't blame them for my predicament. Yeah. So you got to the Canberra Hospital and you went in for surgery. Was it um, a simple process or was it a lengthy, lengthy um, well, operation? Got back to Canberra on the Monday and I think I was operated on the Thursday morning. 
the surgeon came and saw me the Wednesday night beforehand and just sort of took me through what was going to happen. How, how do they actually surgically fix a, a vertebra that's split in half? So what I had happened, so, and I guess I'm not a professional, so I'm not sure what they do in other cases, but in my case they fused a disc above and below the fractured vertebrae and then they uh, screwed two titanium rods to each side of the, the spine and then two small pieces of titanium across to each of those rods that um, spanned the spine. Mm. And at that point they screwed the two floating pieces of vertebrae to those two titanium pieces. So it's sort of like a stabilising system, yeah, So it, it was to stabilise those two pieces so that they could, again, they would fuse together, mm. but it was to stabilise it so that you could get up and move around without the risk of you know, paralysis. Was there a long recovery period after that surgery? Was it? Um, did it take a long time for them to actually discharge you and for you to be, uh, I guess, back to some normal From memory, activity? I think I was there maybe a day or two days, wow. but I was walking the next day. Wow. The the major part of the, I think I had to go and see the doctor in six weeks and he said, I want you to be walking, you know, at least half an hour a day by the time you come and see me. Right. And were you in any pain at that point or were you still sort of not really experiencing any um, ill effects of the I'm, injury? I think they did send me home. I probably had, would have had some painkillers on the day of the operation, but I'm probably a little bit averse to taking tablets as well. I mean, if I'm in real pain, I'll, I'll take something. Mm. But from memory, I can't really say that I was ever in severe pain. So I was very lucky in, in that, that it was a relatively straightforward injury. The doctor fixed it pretty straightforward, and then the recovery was the same. Wow. Does that mean that every time you go through the airport security, you set it all off with your titanium rods in your back? I don't, and that's one of the reasons they use titanium. Oh, okay. It, it doesn't set it off. <laughs> it's good to know. Um, do, have you since done any more rallying since that point? Have you sort of yeah, held your so brother's promise and said, we'll do this again? We did. We had – so I think we had to have a year off of – all extreme sports, or I had to have a year off from all extreme At sports. At least the doctors gave you some really good advice. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, it took us another couple of years to build a new car. Yeah. So that would have been, I think the, we went back in either 2016 or 2017 and to Targa and yeah. did it again. And successful this time? No no rolling down 30-metre embankments? No rolling down embankments, no. So <laughs> it was all good. It was a successful return. Well, that's that's good. And and no major trauma, I suspect, or I, I hope, from, from that impacting you. Because sometimes when people have an accident as significant as that, you know, it, it really makes it hard to go back to the sport they love. But yeah. it sounds like you, you know, yeah, was well, no issue. There was no, I mean... I guess you don't get into a vehicle like or do that sort of thing and think you're never going to have an accident because that's just silly. And as a navigator, I guess you shouldn't get in a, a vehicle if you don't trust the driver. So, yeah, so I had no no issue about getting back in there. And as I said, it's fun 
being in there and doing the rally. If you go back to that 2013 race, Richard, was it the fault of the driver or the navigator that you guys locked up and ended up running into the barrier? I'd say it was the fault of the people that resealed the road on the Friday. Because I spoke with your brother last week and he still feels very much accountable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he still feels that he carries that burden of responsibility. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't, um, I'd say he should let that go because I don't think he's accountable. And, yeah, there was factors there that we were unaware of at the time because I've still got one of the tyres or the wheels with the tyre on it yeah. from the vehicle and it is... You can't feel rubber on it. It's covered in bitumen. So the ability of that tyre to grip the road was severely compromised, So, or as in, to the point where it couldn't. So, And all the four tyres were like that. So, yeah, so it's... Um, look, on another turn earlier in the stage, three cars came off on the one corner. Um, oh, wow. So there was quite a lot of cars off on that stage. And, um, Simply because of that new bitumen that had yeah. just been laid. Yep. Wow. Okay. Well, do you have uh, any advice for persons who love motorsport and involving themselves in somewhat dangerous situations? Do you have any advice for them in terms of how to either have the attitude or the persistence to be involved? Well, I think just, yeah, if you're involved in it, I think most people, they're aware of the risks, but they're involved in it because they like or love doing it they're passionate about it and um, they weigh up the risk and the reward and think the reward is worthwhile to carry that risk yeah and have you had uh, any change of perspective on life at all as a consequence of that accident uh not really i guess i've sort of never been a person that sort of holds on to something so you, you know something happens you move on and it's good or it's bad and you you live the experience and then, yeah, if it's, you know, seen as a bad thing, you, you probably learn from yeah. from that experience. So, But I think one of the things, I guess it was we were fortunate when we had the accident, the both of us, was the year before I think we'd finished eighth outright in our class, which was a pretty good result for us. And we thought after the event had finished, we were discussing that in the drinks afterward and say, okay, what can we do next year to to improve on that? We looked at each other and said, probably lose 20 kilos each. <laughs> so, and I think part of that was what stood both of us in, in good condition because we did lose the weight and get fitter so that, yeah, our, our, our bodies were in a better con condition and state to, to handle the accident and get through it. Yeah. Very wise, yeah. and and I think um, we should get Stephen to listen to this podcast and understand that you hold no grudge, and that um, well, I, I've I have told him that, and I think he knows it. So I know if it, we we're in the different reversed position, I would probably hold myself accountable too. But that's just a natural thing that you do. But yeah, it's um, I guess now it's on the record that he's not accountable. Yeah. Do you have any um, ongoing physical pain or, or um, lack of flexibility or any other issues that your back injury and your new titanium rods have changed for you? Or no, is it well, again, I was, I was very lucky in the spot that it fractured, which was a T4. So it's sort of in the middle of your shoulder blades. It's a spot where 
I guess naturally there's not a lot of movement. So, but no, I have no no pain, no restrictions. Uh, I still go to the gym and occasionally I'll go for a run. There's no memory or no constant memory of, of the event from from pain or you know, movement issues. That's great. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about this today and um, I wish you all the best on your ongoing rallying. Okay, thanks, Lana. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with family and friends. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join our new Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community, where you can chat to other listeners. And please do try out our new podcast hotline. You can call and leave an audio message with questions and feedback on the podcast. The number for the hotline is 02-8405-7928. We look forward to hearing from you. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Cullen. Thanks again for listening. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.